Hello and welcome to The Energy Gang, coming to you from the COP28 climate talks in Dubai. I'm Ed Crooks. So we're halfway through the talks now, and it's now becoming clear what's going to be the big issue in the negotiations for the remainder of the conference. It's the question of whether the governments of the world will agree to make a commitment to phase out the use of fossil fuels over time. Now, on the one hand, you have people who say fossil fuels are responsible for the great majority of human-induced global warming, and so the world has to stop using them. And on the other side, you have people arguing that the real issue is not so much fossil versus non-fossil fuels, but high emissions versus low emissions energy. And there can still be a role for fossil fuels in the long term in a zero emissions world, thanks to carbon capture. Someone who's arguing the case for a complete phase-out is Maria Mendeluce. She's the chief executive of the We Mean Business Coalition, which is a business group that's here at COP28 urging world leaders to set goals for phasing out fossil fuels on a timescale that would put the world on course to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. It is the flavour of the COP, because it is clear that burning fossil fuels are the cause of climate change. No one denies that. And so if we want to tackle climate change, we need to stop burning fossil fuels. We'll hear my interview with Maria Mendeluce in full later in this episode. But first, I discussed the issue of the debate over phasing out fossil fuels and the conclusions of the COP with Kelly Sims Gallagher, who's the Dean of the Fletcher School of Global Affairs at Tufts University. Kelly, thanks very much for joining us. Glad to be here. So you've been a long time observer of COPs. You were telling me earlier that the first COP you went to was COP2, which I make is back all the way in uh, 1996. So very long period of climate diplomacy that you've been following. It seems like it's a very different world now, and COP28 is very different in a lot of ways from COP2. What are the crucial differences, do you think, and how has climate politics and climate diplomacy evolved in that period? Well, to begin with, at that time, emissions were nowhere close to what they are today. So I often reflect, and when I'm teaching and talking with students, what if we had really taken action, you know, going all the way back, you know, starting in 1996, 1997, which was when we did adopt the Kyoto Protocol. At that time, we were still using a really bifurcated approach where industrialized countries were taking the lead and developing countries did not have formal obligations. And it was really a, a time where countries were sort of horse trading. You do this target, we'll do this target. And of course, that was very difficult because it, it was a kind of zero-sum negotiation among the big industrial emitters. And today we're in a very different world where we have global engagement since Paris, and that was the big breakthrough with the Paris Agreement in 2015. All countries have submitted their nationally determined contributions. And the good part about that is we have universal participation and universal commitments from all countries. And the bad part about that is that everything is nationally determined. And so we have not yet had sufficient ambition, I think, among all countries to be able to get us on track to achieve net zero and ideally achieve the temperature goal of 1.5 degrees, much less 2 degrees centigrade. You say the world is clearly not acting with enough ambition at the moment. It doesn't look like that's going to change at COP28, right? I mean, what do you expect to come out of this? We've had clearly a number of announcements. There's been announcements on emissions from the energy industry. There have been announcements on financing loss and damage fund to compensate low and middle income countries, the harm done by climate change and so on. 
there'll be more of those clearly, but in terms of making a significant difference to the overall picture of climate strategy and the way climate policy is evolving worldwide, this COP's not going to make a massive difference to that. Is that right? I am not expecting the big breakthrough at this COP, although I think the global stock take process that is being negotiated here is very important because we are collectively taking stock of where we are at this point. And where we are at this point is terrible. We're, <laughs> we had, we're on track to have record warming. And I think this summer we hit 1.2 degrees Celsius warming uh, in the summertime, and we are also, you know, at record levels of greenhouse gas emissions. So despite the fact that individual countries have made significant progress on reducing emissions, in, in the global perspective, we have record emissions and record warming. So what does that make you feel about this whole COP process, the UNFCCC, and everything that surrounded it? Does that mean that whole effort's been a failure? I don't think it has been a failure, but I have to say I, I swing wildly from optimism about this process to complete and utter pessimism. Uh, and in fact, going into Paris, when, when we were all hoping that there would be a global agreement, and in fact, we got one, I uh, kind of infamously bet against one of my students because I didn't think we were going to get an agreement in Paris. And I'm glad to say we did. I think one of the keys to getting that agreement was the U.S.-China joint announcement in 2014, which was one year ahead of the Paris Agreement. And the reason why that was so significant was that China was sort of effectively the important stakeholder from the developing countries, right? It was already at that time the largest global emitter. And then you had the United States, the largest industrialized country emitter, although certainly we can consider China an industrialized country now. And the fact that the two of them were able to stand side by side, China was actually willing to put a commitment on the table, especially that it would peak its emissions, was very significant. And I think that unlocked this nationally determined contribution process. And you know, one of the things we don't have right now is the US and China really working in partnership to catalyze these global negotiations. So I see that as one significant difference from just a few years ago, right, that 2015. So as you say, there seems to be a kind of a breakdown in relations between the US and China. There's been certainly an escalation of economic competition between the two countries when you think about all the trade barriers the US has been putting up. Actually, in the field of clean energy, perhaps above all, this has been a field where the US is seeking to develop its own industries, is seeking to challenge Chinese domination of some of those crucial supply chains for solar power, for electric vehicles, for battery storage, and so it's on. It's trying to get back in the clean energy game and develop its economy and create clean energy jobs. Right, absolutely. Yeah. So, so it's competing with China. And then you could say there's also a broader kind of escalation of tensions and sort of rumblings about military maneuverings and so on that... Some people say, well, one day there's going to be a war between the U.S. and China. I mean, who knows? Let's hope, Let, let's hope not. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, But you don't even need to kind of be someone who expects that as the most likely outcome to see that, as I say, tensions have risen. And that, as you were saying, does seem like a pretty fundamental issue for global cooperation on climate if you have the world's two largest emitters 
and two logistic economies not working kind of harmoniously together. Now, there were meetings between President Joe Biden in the US, President Xi Jinping of China last month in California that maybe seemed to be kind of warming relations up a little bit, kind of diffusing some of those tensions a bit, talking about a series of collaborative initiatives on energy, for instance. Do you think... How, I mean, how significant was all that? Do you think the tide is turning a little bit? And do you think having had this period of deteriorating relations, now things might be getting a bit better in terms of... I do, I do think US they're getting back on track. Uh, and I think the Sunnylands Agreement was a great step forward, but we have lost effectively six years because look at what happened. As soon as President Trump was elected, he withdrew from the Paris Agreement, and that definitely broke trust with China because, after all, the U.S. and China had stood up side by side at the presidential level and you know, announced their NDCs together and then to have the United States withdraw from the Paris Agreement and implicitly also from the U.S.-China Agreement was a real slap in the face to the Chinese. And it has, as you just explained very well, taken a lot of work and effort to get the two countries even talking to each other again. And I would characterize Sunnylands as the beginning of working together again. They've established a bunch of new working groups. I think it was significant that China agreed in its next NDC that it would cover all greenhouse gases rather than just CO2. That's significant because that, of course, includes methane, which is a potent global warming gas, and uh, also all of the so-called F gases. And China's the biggest emitter of most of those um, perfluorocarbons, hydrofluorocarbons, and so forth. But we're far from being in a position where the U.S. and China are sitting together and strategizing about how to advance the global climate negotiations. I think they're just beginning to restart those conversations. And of course, we're going into an election year, and I think the Chinese are wary about whether they're going to have a consistent partner in the United States going forward. So coming back to COP28, Specifically, you're saying you don't expect any big breakthroughs or kind of revolutionary developments in terms of international climate policy overall. The thing which seems to be the big issue that remains for these talks, and this is something we're currently kind of halfway through, it, this is the issue which seems likely to dominate the remainder of COP28, is the question of whether there will be language agreed between countries about phasing out fossil fuels. And that's the thing which a lot of people see as very important, and they want a commitment clearly coming out of COP, you know, not for immediately giving the use of fossil fuels, but to say that the world is pledging to, over time, abandon the use of fossil fuels altogether. And that effort is being opposed by others who say, well, no, we can't commit to totally getting rid of fossil fuels. We, want, we can talk about phase down, maybe. We have to think that the real issue is not fossil versus non-fossil, it's high carbon versus low carbon, and we ought to be focusing on the emissions, and that therefore means that in particular, because of potential for carbon capture and storage, you can imagine a long-term future for fossil fuels without emissions. How do you see that debate? I mean, given this is the issue which seems to be kind of overshadowing the last few days of this COP, how important is it? I do think whatever they end up agreeing to would be important in terms of sending a long-term signal to the marketplace. And 
I don't think that what is agreed at the COP is going to immediately change, you know, behavior of fossil fuel companies and fossil fuel consumers, all of us, right, who who are still consuming fossil fuel energy. I think the let's just put this in context at the recent G20 summit, there was an agreement to try to triple global renewable energy capacity by 2030. So we are trying to do two things at the same time. Set goals to enhance ambition on the clean and green energy. And then what's happening here is acknowledging that we cannot continue to have unabated fossil fuels forever. And so the question is, how are they going to formulate the statement in a way that all parties can get on board? And I think the key issue here is not whether or not we can continue to use fossil fuels, but whether or not we can continue to allow unabated fossil fuel-based emissions to continue. And so while this sounds very technical and nerdy, uh, let me just go there. <laughs> and, and I would say that, that the key thing we'd be looking for is a phase-out of fossil fuel emissions by some certain date. That would enable continued production and use of fossil fuels, but it assumes that you're applying emission abatement technology to whatever it is, the power plant or the cement industry or, or what have you. And it would allow for you know, use of carbon capture and storage and other emission abatement technologies. Right. And that seems to be very much the line which is being advanced by the hosts of the COP here, the United Arab Emirates. If you hear Sultan al-Jabba, who's the president of the talks and also chief executive of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company here, him talk about his objectives and the way he views the problem. It seems very much aligned with that. And he's very much kind of pushed back against the idea that in making these comments, he's anti-science or anything. And it was actually it was interesting. I don't know if you heard him speak Yesterday, he was on a platform with the head of the IPCC, representing, broadly speaking, scientific consensus on climate science. And they were very much aligned and they were kind of very much kind of pointing in the same direction in terms of the need to reduce emissions and the focus on emissions rather than on fossil fuels or non-fossil fuels, whatever it might be. So that seems like that, that sort of sketch of the possible outcome that you've just described, focusing on emissions rather than fossil fuels specifically, looks more like the way it's more likely to pan out. But then, as I say, that puts a lot of the burden on carbon capture, which is the crucial technology in kind of breaking the linkage between fossil fuels and emissions. You've used a couple of times the word unabated fossil fuels, what needs to be stopped, but so carbon capture, that's an abatement. That If you have carbon capture, that stops fossil fuels being unabated. But People will say there are huge problems. It's expensive. Yes, it is it's expensive. difficult. There's an energy penalty to it. Yeah, and it needs to be scaled up massively from where we are at the moment. Carbon capture projects have been growing rapidly. There's a new wave of government support behind it in the US because of the Inflation Reduction Act, many countries in Europe as well. But even so, what we would need to do to get on a net zero trajectory is hugely greater than all the projects that are currently proposed anywhere in the world. Yes. So, well, I think we should step back here because I don't think that we're going to be only doing fossil fuels with CCS. 
I mean, I, I really do not believe we have any silver bullets in terms of the technology options. I am a big believer in a portfolio approach, and I think we truly will need all of the above because if you look at the emission scenarios and abatement scenarios of the IPCC, we need as much energy efficiency as we can get. We need as much solar and wind and geothermal and hydro and nuclear and you know, fossil fuel with CCS. And even then, it is still going to be challenging for us to get to net zero by 2050. And I, I really want to sort of emphasize the timing here. 2050 is 26 years from now. And I am really conscious of that because that's approximately how long I've been working on climate change in my career so far. And it is, I would never have thought that we would still have ever-growing greenhouse gas emissions when I first started this work back in 1995. And, um, and here we are, we still are having global growth in emissions. So I think what we need to really focus our minds around is if we are serious about achieving the temperature goals, we have to recognize that global emissions need to peak essentially now. And then we have a very rapid pace of emissions reductions that are going to be required. The new emissions gap report for 2023 estimates that if we were to be able to peak by 2030, we would need an 8% reduction annually in global greenhouse gas emissions for the next 25 years. So to me, that means it's the all of the above. We need every single low carbon technology available to us, and we have to exploit all of them to their maximum. And I think what the proportion of each ends up being will be very much a function of their cost. And we will go to our low cost, low carbon technology sources first. And right now, wind and solar are looking good, but we need energy storage, which is still expensive. Uh, we will be exploiting energy efficiency. And then I think the higher cost options are nuclear and carbon capture and storage. So I want to come back to where we came in, just thinking about COPs and the change in the COP process and the way the UNFCCC has been operating down the years. When you were at COP2 and COP3 in Kyoto, there were much smaller affairs than this one, right? COP28, I think it's estimated there are about 70,000 people attending. Is this a better COP process now that we have here with so much interest in it? Or was it actually more effective, do you think, when it was a much smaller thing with much less scrutiny on it? I would argue that we have lost track of the negotiations in the COP process because the COP has turned into this global confab where we have, you know, effectively like a gigantic academic conference, a trade show, deal making, everything under the sun, you know activism and protests. And, you know, over there in that one building now, uh, there are the negotiations going on. And I think the good news is there are so many people who are interested and engaged in climate. And when back in those days, there were less than a thousand people. Um, I think Kyoto may have had 3000 people so to go from 3,000 to 70,000 is extraordinary. Um, 
But I think most people are not here because of the actual negotiations. Most people are here for other reasons. And on the one hand, that's a, an advantage because you can see we're getting engagement from all different sectors of society. But on the other hand, I think it has um, allowed the negotiations to slow down and get uh, mired in a lot of procedural detail. And we have really lost lost track of where we are and where we need to go. And that's why this year's COP is important because of the global stock take. And this is the first global stock take we've had. This was mandated in the Paris Agreement. And my hope coming out of this COP is that we will see a clear mandate to establish new nationally determined contributions for the post-2030 period, and also focus much more on our implementation gap which, and by that I mean the gap between what countries pledged they would do in Paris and what they have actually done uh, to get themselves on track to achieve their targets. So, so if you ran the COP and you could uh, do anything you wanted to kind of improve the process to help it get to those better outcomes, how would you change it? Well, I think we need to allow for more diversification of modes of engagement among the countries. Um, it is important, I think, for smaller groups of countries to be able to negotiate with each other to unlock progress. So I go back to that example of the U.S. and China in the run-up to Paris coming together and doing a bilateral deal that had a very catalytic effect on the COP process in terms of unlocking that whole NDC process. But at the time, the two countries were criticized for going it alone and doing you know, their own deal. I think we need to see much more of that. I think we need to have countries working together, experimenting on developing new ideas. Another example of that was the establishment of the RED process, the reducing emissions from deforestation. Um, and I think um, we're, we're, when you have a global negotiation with 196 countries, it goes very slowly. Um, so my understanding, for example, we're halfway through the COP as we talk right now, and um, they just finished reading the initial text going into the global stock take. And you know that, that took five days. And now they're beginning the negotiation process and we're already through. So you know, it's taking way too long and it's too complex to do global negotiations on every single issue. And I think we need to start moving in a much more pragmatic and nimble way to uh, have the, the countries that are relevant to a particular discussion engaged in experimenting with new solutions and then bringing them to the COP for consideration you know, globally. And do you think there's a chance that'll happen? I think that we are getting to a point where it is clear that we are not making fast enough progress. And so we have to innovate this process if we, have a, if we want to have a chance of achieving our global goals. Right. That's a really interesting point. And actually, it's kind of very interesting to think, to take, just take that step back and to think about the negotiations as a process and the way they work and which probably doesn't actually receive that much scrutiny. Everyone kind of focuses on the outcomes and the specific kind of decisions that are being made. But to think about climate policy, international climate negotiations in process terms, 
and what could be done to make that better probably doesn't get nearly enough attention. Yeah, I mean, let me give you two examples of things that I think aren't being well addressed by the COP. The first is how countries at the national level are implementing climate policies to achieve their own goals, the goals they set for themselves in the nationally determined contributions. I think many developing countries are very uncertain about what is the policy mix that will allow them to get themselves on track. And meanwhile, their highest priority is development. And so these countries are uncertain about which policies they can pursue that will allow them to grow their economies, but not add CO2 emissions. I wrote an article a few years ago called The Coming Carbon Tsunami. And my, my argument there was that most developing countries, their urgent priority today is poverty alleviation and growth, job creation and economic growth. And we have not, in the COP process, responded well to that dilemma faced by many developing countries. And it relates to the second issue, which is the finance. So where is all the money going to come from to help a country like Kenya develop a, a clean energy economy? This is an example of a country that has set very ambitious goals for itself from a climate point of view. Um, but it needs to have international investment in the energy sector for it to be able to achieve those goals. And uh, the way that climate finance has worked in the COP is not congruent with how the real world works. We have established these specialized climate funds like the Green Climate Fund, which does a project by project you know, uh, distribution of finance, very little engagement from the private sector and from private financiers and investors. So I think we really need to, this is a great example of, we need to, to do that outside the COP process. We need to work with individual countries and say, what are you hoping to achieve? And then bring all of the, the investors to the table and figure out how we're going to allocate risk and finance, you know, Kenya's clean energy economy. Very interesting. That is, yeah, a fascinating insight into thinking about, as you say, ways to do things better in the future and ways to take the global effort to address climate change forward far beyond the boundaries of this COP other than this little right. I bubble mean, I can't imagine that happening in the context of the COP. <laughs> but I think it's complementary to what's happening here. And it could happen somewhere, and it could happen in lots of other places around the world, right? Given the right drive and effort from governments, investors, businesses, civil society, everyone that's involved in this. Yes. Certainly, let's hope that happens. Then. Kelly Sims Gallagher, thanks very much for joining us. Great to talk to you. It's been a pleasure to be here. And I'm joined now by Maria Mendeluthi, who is the chief executive of the We Mean Business Coalition. Maria, thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you, Edmund. My pleasure. So you're here at the COP talking about your campaign, what you call the Fossil to Clean campaign, which is talking about the need for a complete phase-out of all fossil fuels. And that issue, that question of whether we need a complete phase-out of fossil fuels is really the central debate, it seems, here at COP28. Do you want to talk a little bit about what your argument is, why you're making this case that we do need this complete phase-out of fossil fuels, and what success you think you're having in terms of persuading people about that case? 
Well, thanks a lot. It is the flavor of the COP. And it's interesting because some call about the maturity. So the COP process is 28 years old. So one could say that it's quite mature and mature to have the conversation that we need to have. Because it is clear that burning fossil fuels are the cause of climate change. No one denies that, right? And so if we want to tackle climate change, we need to stop burning fossil fuels. Okay? And so for the first time last year, a group of 80 countries said, we, instead of talking about fossil fuel of coal, we should talk about fossil fuel of all fossil fuels. And we jump immediately to this topic, which is fundamental, and it shows that we are mature enough to talk to things by their name. So we need to move from fossil to clean. It is incredibly the progress that the clean energy has made, and more to come. Every single estimates about how far clean energy can go, and I mean solar and, and, and wind, it's been beaten by itself, right? So now there is a big goal, tripling renewables, doubling energy efficiency. And we argue that then we also need to tackle the main cause of climate change. We need to phase out fossil fuels. Now, phase out is not immediately, you know. We need to start phasing down to get to phase out. Right, because I was about to say, on the face of it then, absolutely. I mean, clearly it is very generally agreed, except on the wild fringes, that the use of fossil fuels is the major contributor to anthropogenic climate change. That's common ground, basically. The difficult part, though, is clearly that fossil fuels also are not just central to the global energy system, actually dominate the global energy system. Still, about 80% or thereabouts of the world's primary energy comes from fossil fuels. And so, if you start saying, phase that out, even if you're talking about phasing out over a timetable of decades, immediately that seems like a colossal challenge and to many people it just seems unrealistic. When you get into those kind of arguments with people and those kind of debates over whether this is a realistic goal or not, how do you try to persuade them? So the, the challenge is colossal, but it has been done already. And very recent in our memory, we used to, to work with land telephone lines, and now everybody is, is with the smartphones, right? So it can be done. Uh, now, it is quite similar because some of the technologies that will replace fossil fuels are like smartphones. They are small and it, they can be scaled. And I find there are interesting parallels, but this is not to say that it's going to be easy. It's going to be very difficult. And that's why it's important that at this COP, governments set the North Star. We're going to face down to face out fossil fuels. And that will mean that the national plans, emission reduction plans, will have to include three things. Tripling renewables, doubling energy efficiency, and phase out of fossil fuels in certain uses and growing. And that's the way to start. We can't say it's too difficult. We need to start. And we know that we can electrify our homes. We can electrify our transport. Let's start there. And the reality is that now all our regulations are made to make it easy to consume fossil fuels. When you look at your home, look at your car, look at all the problems you have when you want to move from a gas heating system to solar heat pumps. It takes much more time, right? And so this is what governments need to start doing. And that comes with the determination and with that North Star on what we want to achieve. So we are 
business. We represent business, we are realistic and it can be done. There are a lot of companies that are, have started that movement and it is unstoppable, unstoppable. But we do need uh, regulations and those regulations are going to be set up here at COP and this is going to be the turning point. So what about the counter argument, which you do hear pretty often, is that the real issue is not the particular type of energy we're talking about, but it's the emissions, obviously, because that's uh, what drives climate change. And so what you should be thinking about is not so much fossil fuels and clean energy, but high emissions energy and low emissions energy. And that low emissions energy then could include substantial continued use of fossil fuels, essentially with carbon capture and storage. And carbon capture and storage then is that crucial technology that kind of bridges the gap between fossil fuels and clean energy and that makes it possible to have continued demand and use of fossil fuels while moving towards zero emissions. You will hear people make that argument and they will say, well then, that shows that the really crucial technology we need to develop is carbon capture at very large scale and it needs to be improved, cost of it needs to be reduced, and it needs to be deployed massively around the world. Do you agree that that's part of it? And when you talk about then needing to move to clean energy, do you accept that fossil fuels with carbon capture could be part of that picture? For certain uses, we don't have the alternative to fossil fuels. And for those uses in how to abate industries, and, and, and those are being reduced because we can do zero emissions still. So we're talking maybe about some of the concrete and, and aviation, okay? There might be some alternatives. Obviously, for aviation, we cannot use CCS. So, you know, personally, I'm not attracted by CCS. The, the industry has been talking about CCS for more than a decade. The industry has been earning record profits, and yet they're not deploying that technology. So I do question, I do ask the industry, what is in that wonderful technology that you have that you're not deploying it? I'm here at COP and I'm listening to such a way of innovation, desalination with uh, solar, um, what do you say, wind, green hydrogen, uh, all sorts of storage technologies. So I do challenge the industry to say, really? I mean, if it was so important and so fundamental, why haven't you invested it? Are you expecting that we pay for high prices of oil and also for high prices of whatever you're going to sell with CCS? Because I don't want to pay that. I want to pay for storage. I want to, to pay for the decentralized solutions, solutions that are accessible all over the world. Honestly, let's look ourselves to the mirror. Let's talk about real things and let's not hide behind that technology that if it was so great, it would be out there and it's not. You make the argument then that renewables and those other kind of clean energy technologies that you favour are the low cost solutions, economically competitive. That's true some of the time, surely, right? So, as you say, if you're thinking about power generation, Wind and solar probably in many parts of the world are the lowest cost option for power generation on a levelized cost of energy basis. However, I mean, it's a truism and uh, people roll their eyes when you bring it up, but it is true. Wind and solar are not dispatchable, not always available when you want them, and they're not available 
365 days a year. There is clearly a need for another solution, a range of other solutions in power generation to provide firm power whenever you need it. And when you start talking about those, those kind of solutions and you talk about pairing your wind and solar with battery storage, whatever it might be, pairing it with hydrogen and using hydrogen for energy storage, then the costs rocket right up. And then those kind of economics that make wind and solar look very attractive and competitive don't apply anymore. So then when you make that pitch, and when you make that pitch in emerging economies and developing countries in particular, to say you should be moving to clean energy, that's the solution. It's not only clean, but it's cost effective as well. If you think about delivering firm power, a lot of those arguments start to kind of slip away from you, don't they? I mean, how do you make that case given those additional challenges? I think this is a very fair question that I listen very often. I find it is an outdated question with all my respects, not because I know you need to ask these questions and, and we need to clarify why this is outdated. Okay, because now there is a myriad of uh, battery storage solutions, flexibility solutions that are being made available, right? I understand that back in 2015, 2016, those were not existing and we needed a little bit of gas here and there to compensate. But I think now there are solutions that can uh, make that case. It's quite interesting because you can talk to many people and I met the first uh, meeting I came here, uh, I listened to many people from Southeast Asia and then, then is when you have a reality check because they said, you know, in my country, when we invest, we start with renewables, then we invest more in renewables and we do more renewables. And only when there's no more renewables available, then we might bring a little bit of gas. And we can never, we never are thinking about coal. I know that's not a generalization of what is happening, but it, it that does show the sentiment out there that now renewables are a real solution, right? And also when you talk about hydrogen, yes, I understand they're very expensive. I don't have here with me the numbers, right? But also I listened to someone from Aqua, which is an industry here in the region that is deploying desalination solution. And the prices, you know, and combining with hydrogen were so, so attractive uh, financially. So I do think that the space is moving really fast. And as I said before, the, the conversation it's about you know, the green hydrogen, some, some solutions that involve several technologies that are being made available. And that's where investors should be looking their eyes to, obviously, because they are the solutions of the future, right? They're future-proof solutions in some ways. Absolutely. So I entirely hear what you say, and I think everything you say is right. But I want to throw back to you a point you just made to me about carbon capture, where you said, you know, if it's so great, if it's really economically viable, if it's competitive, why isn't it happening at a larger scale? You could make exactly the same point, surely, about power generation in Asia, where, as you say, investment in renewable energy is spectacular, it's growing incredibly fast. The numbers coming out of China in particular, in terms of their expansion in solar power this year, just breathtaking, an enormous amount of solar capacity being added. And yet, one point is that China is still adding more coal-fired capacity as well, that it does still make economic sense in parts of China to build new coal-fired capacity. And then two, the thing that is absolutely not happening, and this is not happening in China or India, Southeast Asia, anywhere across that region, people are not talking about shutting down existing coal-fired power plants 
and replacing them with renewable generation. The economics of that at the moment still just do not seem to stack up. So as you say, when you're talking about a phase out of fossil fuels, even if you're talking about that happening over time, how do you persuade those economies, in particular low and middle income countries where the cost of energy is absolutely the most important thing that they have to worry about, how do you persuade them to make that shift and to shift away from fossil fuels and coal in particular? Yes. So when we talk about fossil fuel uh, phase out, it is an all star and it's not going to happen tomorrow. So we need to phase down to phase out, right? And we need to, to do it where it can be done. And there will be investments in existing uh, fossil fuel infrastructure because let's face it, we need that energy, okay? And, and we talk to, about that industry with a lot of respect because there are you know, professionals that are doing their work and they're giving the energy that we need, okay? So let's be you know, firm and clear that we need both, that we need to move from fossil to clean. So it is about new investments. So if now uh, investors are investing 1.7 in clean towards one in fossil, we need to move to four to one. And I think the, the, the financiers are going in that direction, okay? But it's, it's very good that they benchmark themselves against that target, okay? That themselves are, are, set, they are setting themselves that target. And you do point to the reality that in some of these emerging economies, yes, the demand is growing so fast that even that it's, we have the paradox that, that China is leading on renewables and also investing in new coal. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm expecting and I, you know, to see the Chinese stepping up to the position that they have in the world and starting to phase out new investments in coal and, and to phase down um, the old coal plants as soon as possible. Now, what I'm quite intrigued is to see, you see the exponential curves of solar, which they don't have, a, we don't see any signs of them plateauing, right? So we are yet to see much more development with solar wind combined with hydrogen and new battery storage technologies that will allow us to, to, to provide the solutions that, that these emerging economies need. So you've talked about what you want to see out of COP28 in terms of this international commitment to phasing out and clearly a phasing out, not a phasing down of fossil fuels. How optimistic are you that we're going to get that? I'm very inspired by, we have 200 companies that have stepped up and says, yes, we're moving fossil to clean. And this is what we're asking policymakers. So these 200 companies, they come big and small. I was just talking to Volvo cars who are going to stop selling diesel cars in 2024 and are going to be fully electric by 2030. So we see a growing number of companies that are taking the lead on this movement from fossil to clean. Those are the companies that are demanding energy and demand is going to drive a lot of the transformation. But it's not only demand, we need policies because policies can be an enabler or a barrier to the transformation. And the issue is that we could transform in 100 years, we will be fully renewable but we don't have time, right? So that's why it's so important that at COP, the policymakers include this text on the outcomes at COP, and that comes down then to the NDCs and the local regulations. Right, because I'm about to ask exactly that question, which is, if we do get that commitment at COP28, what difference would it make? Because I'm sure a lot of people out there in the world beyond the, this bubble that we're in at the moment of these talks will say, this kind of uh, commitment's basically not going to be terribly relevant, won't make any difference to anything. Governments can set these long-term targets 
and it won't actually change behavior in terms of the daily decisions people are making about what they invest in in terms of energy technologies. Is it really going to make a difference, do you think, if we get that commitment you want to see? I think when the citizens of the world see an announcement you know, coming out of this region saying we're going to move from fossil to clean, we're going to phase down burning fossil fuels and getting those emissions going to the atmosphere, anyone that is going to invest will say, well, I'm going to invest in clean because fossil is the past. Fossil is risky, clean is the future and clean is the opportunity. And this is the signal that needs to come out of this COP. Now, let me talk to you about Al Jaber. He is, you know, the man. This is Sultan Al Jaber. He's the president of the talks, also uh, chief executive of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company. An incredible, courageous man that is talking about the topic of the moment with a lot of courage, with his own bias, <laughs> with his own hats. Uh, but it is really admirable that we're having the conversations that we're having. And we might not agree on some of the arguments, but I think what we need to agree that he has the courage to tackle the most important thing with maturity. And maturity means listening to every position and trying to find consensus. So he's the man that needs to bring a resolution to this important moment. And we need to talk about things. We need to talk it by their name. The future needs to be clean. The future needs to see a very steep decline on emissions, which we're not seeing. And to do that, we need to tackle it by stopping some of the uses of fossil fuels that are throwing emissions to the atmosphere. In terms of talking about the solutions, right, that's what I want the COP to evolve, to a place where we can move you know, from talking about the problems to talking about the solutions and to bring in the people that are going to implement those solutions, right? So it needs to be a more inclusive uh, COP. It is going to be, needs to be more solution-oriented. We need to be able to speak to the countries that are going to set the regulations that will allow some of these solutions to come, that will allow investment to flow. And if we're not in the discussions that are happening, how are they going to set up the regulatory frameworks that are needed? Mary Mendelisi, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Maria Mendelussi, thanks very much indeed. And thanks very much to Kelly Sims-Gallagher of Tufts University, who spoke to us earlier in the show. It seems very clear this issue is going to continue to rumble on and it's going to dominate the debates at the COP for the remainder of the conference until it ends next week. It's clear that there are pretty deeply entrenched positions on both sides. The people who are arguing that the world's governments do need to make that commitment to phase out fossil fuels, and the people who want some somewhat milder language, perhaps talking about a phase down instead. We're going to continue to follow these debates and these arguments and everything else that's happening at the COP very closely in the days to come. So keep listening, keep following The Energy Gang wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll be back to you tomorrow with more of the latest news and insight from COP28. Until then, goodbye.